Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where various guests tell me the five things from their life, no matter how insignificant they may seem to others, that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. Four things they cherish and would like to keep safe, and one thing they loathe and would want to bury in the ground and never have to contemplate again. My guest in this episode is Justin Morehouse, who describes himself as a comedian, actor, parent, undercover vegan, podcaster, and dog walker. And indeed, he has been many things in his time, before discovering his talent for stand-up at the age of 29. He was a salesman for many years, before getting the role of young Kenny in Peter Kay's Phoenix Nights. He also appeared in the film Looking for Eric, alongside Eric Cantona, lucky devil, and has been in Michael McIntyre's comedy Roadshow, Still Open All Hours, Celebrity Mastermind, and alongside his pal John Thompson in Celebrity Haunted Hotel Live. Unlucky devil. Plus, he played Dean Upton in Coronation Street. He wrote and performed his own BBC Radio 4 sitcom, Everyone Quite Likes Justin, and he's been a presenter on a number of commercial radio shows and now regularly presents his own show on BBC Radio Manchester. He also presents his own podcast called About 30 Minutes, No More Than 45. So, to bring the changes, Justin and I spoke for more than 45 minutes. And it was worth it, as I hope you'll discover now. Now. 
In the first lockdown, I started, um, I was worried about money and one thing and another and all those other things that come with it. But touch wood, things have been okay and I managed to keep a bit of work going and one thing and another. But then it's purpose, isn't it? It's about what you do. Yeah. And both me and Jason Manford, we both started driving for the uh, car scheme. <laughs> so we take old people to get their hair done. But you know what? It's just so good to, like, and I start tomorrow back with them on the COVID injection run. Oh, great. So just going backwards and forwards, taking them. And it's always just, you've got, I think the one thing about this lockdown and this, for me anyway, has been the sense that there are more good people in the world than bad people. Like a lot of people, I've pressed pause on a lot of things. Yeah. And gone, yeah, this is important. That's not important. You know? Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm quite into, um, I mean, have we started the podcast yet, but we're just having a chat, but I'm, <laughs> I'm quite into uh, stoicism. The idea that, you know, the simple stuff, you know, like control the controllables and mm-hmm. this too shall pass and all those things. And, you know, I'm not a religious person or even a spiritual person, but practically that's how I deal with things. Yeah. In the psychiatrist chair, I feel very much at ease with you, Michael. Oh, that's lovely. Good. Yeah. The last time I saw you, I don't know if yeah. you know this, I came to see you doing the revival of uh, Radioactive. Oh, did you? Yeah, at the Fringe. How was it? Did you like it? it? I loved it. I, oh, bless What you. I loved about it, uh, because obviously the scripts have not been changed. No, lazy buggers. I really enjoyed it. It was good, great fun. Oh, good. I had to explain status quo to my daughter. oh lovely justin it's really great to have you on my time capsule so we're going to talk about the five things from your life Mm -hmm. that you want to put into a time capsule right so what i've done is uh, because i entered my sixth decade this year uh, last year i would turn 50 in lockdown Mm -hmm. i look back and i thought well i've completed five decades so i'll pick a thing from each decade of my life oh that's nice yeah and that'll give you an insight into who i am because Reading between the lines, that's what this podcast is all about, isn't it? You You have read between the lines. That is what it's about. It's about how to find out about someone in a sort of a a roundabout way. Yeah. So the first one I'm going to pick is a a red plastic toy car, which you could sit in when you were a child. Mm -hmm. And I had this when I was about four. And it's the one possession I've ever had. I can still smell it. I can still feel the roughness of the plastic on the seat and the smoothness where I got in and out of it a few times. It was like it was like Lego quality, but in a car. It was it was chunky and everything else. And the reason I remember it is because when I was about four or five, and I don't really know why, my parents divorced or they split up, me and my little brother. And we went off to my grandparents for I don't know how long. I don't remember these things. But I remember my granddad buying me this car and my mum saying to me, your granddad's your dad now. Oh, Lord. And, yeah, and then I I remember that and I remember my grandparents' house. It was a lovely, you know, kind of memory and the car was great and they lived in a kind of proper northern, old-fashioned, two-up, two-down backyard. They had a toilet in the back. I mean, they had an inside toilet as well, but they still had an outside toilet you could use. Mm. And I remember going round in this car and everything else. And the reason why I mention it and the reason why I want to keep hold of it because, um, and I did say to you that I would probably go deep on, on this because it's a thing that stuck with me a lot because I, um, and then after my mum and dad, uh, my this is the weirdest thing, my, after my mother and father uh, split, my mum remarried and we got a new dad and we changed our name. Then I became Morehouse. Morehouse is quite a northern name, isn't it? 
Yeah. Before that, I had an even more northern name. I was called Clegg. So <laughs> he kind of, I was called Clegg. And I had, um, I had uh, calipers when I was little. I had Perthies in my hips. Oh, right. So uh, you can imagine what I was called at school, Peg Leg Clegg. Here he oh, is. Anyway, God. but that, 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 that didn't affect me as much as. And it's only in the last 12 months where uh, I've had one or two little struggles with things. And I had some therapy and talked about one or two things. And I've only realised now that I've spent all my life wondering why my dad didn't want me. Because my dad, my my father, the man who is my father, I have no relationship with. I never had a relationship with him uh, until I was about 18 and I tried. And I, I know where he is now and I can get hold of him and need him. But we have no relate. I don't know his birthday. I don't know anything about him. Uh, my mum remarried to a, a, a brilliant, gorgeous man who took me and my brother on. And um, he passed away last year. And this is probably what prompted, well, I know it is what prompted a lot of uh, mm. stuff that I went through. And and um, and it made me evaluate things because I looked at this man who died, who'd been my dad. He'd not been my father, he'd been my dad. And he died. And I felt weird. I felt a disconnection that my other siblings had with him because yeah. he was their dad and he was their blood and... It's such a weird thing, and if you if you've never been through something similar, it's hard to describe that feeling. That you know, you expect that kind of weeping and wailing. Do you remember um, Victoria Wood used to talk about funerals, and they'd say on the continent they'd throw themselves on a funeral pyre and de- demonstrative. And we're not very demonstrative people, uh, no, Brits. Sorry for your loss, we say. Yeah, or even my family. We don't talk about anything. We don't. Never talk about the big stuff. We never bring anything up, and it festers for years. And I have a difficult relationship with that, and I have a difficult relationship with my thoughts about the man who brought me up and the thoughts about the man who didn't want to be my dad, and that transfers itself in the way that I um, parent my children now in negative ways sometimes if i got to check myself and, and all that. But that red car, <laughs> that red car symbolises the happiest time of my life was when my mum and dad split up. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a weird take on that, isn't that it? That is weird, isn't it? You get moved to your grandparents, you get told your, your granddad's now your dad. Yeah. And they buy you this car and you go, this is great. This is great. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, really, if that is the happiest time, you must have been unhappy before. You must have, in a way, as a tiny child, sensed hmm. the trauma that was coming, I suppose. Well, I would imagine so, because... Knowing my mum, like I've known her for 50 years, she's not very good at hiding how she feels about things. So I would imagine there was some transference. And there were some things that, and I don't want to be disparaging because, you know, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. mean to. Uh, But, you know, it's not their fault. As as Larkin said, it's not their fault. And uh, they were children, they were boomers, you know, children of the war and uh, brought up by Victorian parents. Yeah. Essentially. My dad, my stepfather, who's my dad, uh, his mother had died young and his stepmother was awful. There's all these things going on and he was institutionalised. He'd been in the army and he was... A, but he was a beautiful, great, great man. The word step is such a weird thing and it's actually... It doesn't... It's not real. There's no such thing as a stepfather or a stepmother. It comes from a German, Steop. And the Steop child is a child that has no parent. So it's an orphan. That's what it means. Right. And we've just reappropriated the Steop to step... The word step, actually, if you think about it in a positive way, it's somebody who steps up or steps in. Yeah. You know, they're not a step removed, they're a step closer. Mm. So I've kind of come to terms with, he was a good man and I'm not complaining about him, but I think it's really important that, and it's 
it's very interesting now that friends of mine adopt and have fostered and one or two things that kids know where they come from. Hmm. Kids know, but I know I don't know anything about my one half of my my ancestry. I don't know if there's any disease there or if there's any, you know, th- you know, these things are important. Have you asked him? I mean, if you're in contact with him, have you ever asked him why he just felt able to just stop seeing you? Well, my mum and him agreed that that would be the reason. Um, I never got adopted by my stepfather, but we changed our names by depot. Right. And that was kind of to fit in and, you know, we all had the same name and that would that was easier in the... This is the 70s. It's a different time, you know. Mm-hmm. It, you gotta, in the 70s, everybody was getting divorced, you know. I did try and reach out to him. When I had my own son, I tried to establish a relationship with him and then I thought... I don't want to put him through this because he's now got two granddads. Um, so really, that red car is my happiest memory of being a kid. And I wasn't, I don't want this to come out wrong, I wasn't unhappy in any way. I wasn't, I wasn't unhappy. Uh, you know, I just, I have been unhappy since about that. Mm. Am I making sense? It does make sense that yeah. actually at the time you think to yourself, well, uh, that's okay, all right. Now, I should imagine the moment you moved in with your grandparents, you felt safe. I, yeah, I can't really remember that because was, I was very young. I can't really, I don't have a solid memory like that. That's probably why the red car is symbolic and is very much a forefront. And we weren't there forever. We went back to the house and my mum kept the house and we lived in it till she sold it when we were in our 20s. So we, yeah. you know, she went back to the house and she married my dad quite quickly. I see, this is weird. Mm. But I'll tell you this, Michael, I'll tell you this. And I don't, I don't want to labour the pot and I don't want them to be miserable about this and I don't want to upset anybody alive or dead. But there's something that my mum said, and she said to me, you can see Keith if you want, which is the name of my, the man who, whose genes I've got. You can see Keith if you want, but what will your dad think? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's like, boom, isn't it? That's that a is confusing, whammy. isn't it? Yeah, and so I just went, okay, okay, okay. called him dad. I mean, it's, it's caused a little bit of a rift now with my younger siblings who... I love as equally as as I love my my other sibling that they because they never knew any different. He is their father. Is that he what is their father, mm. and he had no other kids, and they have not got any other older half siblings. And yeah. we never used the word half, you know. And we don't in our family now because my son and my daughter are half siblings, but they, you know, it's brother and sister. It's not. Yeah. It's not, you know, brother and sister are people you're with, isn't it? But um, absolutely, I think it's more to do with circumstances, where you yeah. are and who yeah. you who you spend the time with, exactly. than actual blood ties and things. But anyway, my red car was lovely. I bet it was. And yeah. the great thing about it is that you would have been driving that around in a tiny little backyard. Yeah. And it would have been the world. I was doing a lot of three point turns. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the most fun you can have in a little red yeah. car. I've turned this podcast into a Ken Loach film, haven't I? <laughs> Oh, Justin, come home. <laughs> well, I will put it into the time capsule for you then, Justin, and, uh, and keep Thank it you. safe because it's clearly a very precious memory. The reason I put it in there and the reason I want to talk about it because I do realise this is a personal podcast and it's very much that sort of thing because I think it establishes who I am and yeah. it's my motivation and everything else. So mm. shall, shall we move on? Yeah, let's move on. It's in the time capsule. Let's move on to item number two. A picture of my dead aunt. No. (laughs) (laughs) A skeleton of the first pet I ever loved. Um, (laughs) I'm going to put a ZX Spectrum computer in there. Oh, brilliant. You better explain it because I should imagine there are many people who have the faintest idea what you're talking about. All right, so I'm not very very techie, 
but I love gadgets. So I don't know how they work, but I love buying them. So I buy the latest thing. I've got the, the watch and the iPad and the, I, I love all that stuff. <laughs> and the idea that you could have this thing in your house that connected to your television that you could play games on or word pro. I didn't even know what word processing was, but <laughs> word process. And I, we got it when I was about, I think I would have been about 13, about 1983, something like that. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get the very first. Well, the very first one was a ZX80, then a ZX81, then we got the ZX83, the Spectrum, which was the, the colour one. Oh, brilliant. And this was going to be so exciting. And it was, uh, and it's just something that I remember getting into. And I think I'm so lucky. I don't know how old you are, Michael. I think I'm a little bit younger than you. You are. You are. I, I will be. Well, I only found out the other day, actually, that, that I will be 63 in a few weeks' time. You only found out the other day? Uh, yeah, I thought I was 63 already. Oh, right. I thought you had a story like me. You had a different dad and you'd burst if it was all false. And... <laughs> no, nothing complicated, just stupidity. Yeah, well, I think I'm 13 years luckier than you because I was born into this white heat of computer technology and, the you know, the sort of stuff. I mean, so I didn't grow up with the internet, but by the time I was in my 20s, the internet was around and I got used to everything very quickly and I, I got a mobile phone when I was in my 20s. And so I've always loved that sort of thing. But my love of it started with the ZX Spectrum and the, playing the games and with friends and friendships and buying magazines. And it gave me a, a, a lifelong love of being part of a club and a gang and that sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you if you were ever into computers. No, I think probably being slightly older, it was one of those things that eventually I got into, really, for the word processing part of it. I remember a friend bringing round one of the first Apple computers. Was that friend one of the previous guests on your podcast? No, it wasn't. No, it was a friend of mine called Ramsey Gilderdale. Ramsey Wilson Gilderdale, in fact, his full name is. He now is lives he in actor? Sicily and is, a, is, is an estate agent in Sicily, but he was a oh, brilliant wow. actor. He was in a fantastic series called Maid Marian. With, yeah, with Mark Billingham. That's right, Mark Billingham. Yeah, who I play poker with sometimes online. Oh, do you? Well, send yeah. my regards. How lovely. <laughs> He's normally very grumpy. <laughs> <'Cause> he... <laughs> he says, oh, God, I'm so grumpy on my Pockets are so full of money. I don't know what to do with it all. (laughs) I'll put it in one of these rooms I forgot I had. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing well, isn't he? Yeah, very good. In case anyone's listening doesn't know who we're talking about, Mark Billingham is a crime writer, isn't he? He writes the... um, I forgot what the name of his books are called. Uh, Money for Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're called... It's it's Detective Thorne, isn't it? That's right, um, yeah. Yeah, they're really good, actually. I like them. All the people in them are named after comedians. Oh, I'd never noticed that. So Thorne is Paul Thorne, and there's a Kitson, who's Daniel Kitson, and there's all these different people who, who, who he put in <laughs> when he first started writing them. But he was, like, you know, selling millions of books and still working the weekend at the comedy store, and he would compare, and it would be, like, 2 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning, and he's doing the late show, and I was thinking, what are you doing, mate? <laughs> What are you doing? You could just swan in and do a Thursday night if you wanted to. You don't have to do the graft. No, buy the theatre. Yeah, yeah, put your own shows on, Andrew Lloyd Webber it. So I put the ZX Spectrum in there because I'm not a gamer, but I love computers, I love browsing, I love YouTube. I can get lost in YouTube for days, you know, Mm. just go down rabbit holes. I look at pimple popping things and... (laughs) <laughs> All sorts of rubbish, and I, I watch, you know, Irish travellers fighting. <laughs> I just, I Who these, wouldn't? Oh, they're just great. But then it's not the fighting so much. I don't know if you've ever seen in these videos. No. It's more the calling out. 
So they'll call each other out and they'll say, you know, I'm here in Carrick Fergus. You come for me, I'll come for you, bring your family and all this sort of thing. And it's all done and there'll be ones behind them going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. So I put the ZX Spectrum in there to kind of symbolise my, I'm a computer user, not a computer nerd. Mm. So I love computers, I love gadgets, I love all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm into all that. And what were you doing then in the 80s, early 80s? So what was I doing in the 80s? I was at school, I was a schoolboy. Um, so, yeah, I was 11 in 1981. I kind of wasn't very good at school. I wasn't good at school. Well, I, I was bright enough. I was the kid who always had his hand up. I always had the answers. I could do all the work, but I never did any work. Not a tap. Genuinely, not a thing. <laughs> and I was predicted to get seven or eight O-levels and be all fine and everything else. I didn't do any work. I, I, this is, I'm not kidding. No revision. Because I used to saunter in and get the work, pass the exams, it'd be fine. And I failed at that hurdle. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So we were on holiday and we came back for our results. And we were a little bit late because uh, I had to go in and get them after everybody else. And the caretaker gave me mine. Oh, no. And as he handed them over, he looked at them and he went, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and I got one O-level in English and the rest were terrible. So... So I was 16, 1986, I had no desires to do what we do now as a, as a living. I never no thought of it, despite my starring role as Boy 3 in The King and I, <laughs> at the uh, Hyde Little Theatre in Omelie. I remember the reviews, fantastic. <laughs> yes. The notices, as we called them, Michael. Yeah, of course, yes. <laughs> yes. The notices were marvellous. <laughs> when I took my, well, O-levels, I absolutely fucked them up completely. Yeah. I mean, I only took five. I was at a secondary modern school, so I only took five O-levels, but just terrible results. Really? And by rights, I should have then left school, but I said to the teacher, but I want to go to sixth form. I want to stay on. <laughs> and he said, but look at your results. They're terrible. Mm. What are you going to do? And I said, well, give me a chance. And, you know, bless him. He said, okay, but, you know, come Christmas, we're going to have another look at your work and see if it's up to standard. And by Christmas, I was, you know, top of the class. Put my head down. He gave me that chance and it opened a whole new world. Failing those exams had probably given you the wake-up call you needed. Yeah. Yeah, well, I never... I mean, this is going to sound like this entire podcast is me complaining about my parents. <laughs> but they didn't push me. Sort of a little bit of bitterness and resentment comes from the fact that my brother went to the Manchester Grammar School. Right. Which is an incredibly good school. And because I applied for these independent private schools and... Passed a couple of exams, but my parents couldn't afford to send me. Ah. By the time my brother was going, luckily my dad had been made redundant, so he got a bursary. <laughs> I mean, this is weird. So he ended up going to this good school, and it was really good, and he wasn't any less bright than I was or, or anything else, but he had that thing at school where they cared about them, they pushed them and everything else, and I would get in trouble, and why don't you be more like your brother? And I said, well, look at his school. It's not the school. I said, because the previous people who had been to his school were like Sir Ben Kingsley, and mm. Jonathan Powell. And I said, he goes to school with Gandhi and Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> My school is sons of bank robbers and all sorts of stuff. Also, the expectation that teachers put on you at that point. Yeah. If you're at those sort of schools, they sort of go, well, you've done what we sort of expected you to do, not yeah. do very well. So, you know, what are you talking about? Yeah, and also, I think because I was quite nice, I was never in trouble at school. I was always pleasant and personable and I would help the teachers out and do things, but there was weeks where I just didn't go and no one really checked on me. Mm. I don't remember very much about school. I very 
There's very little actual memory of lessons and everything else. Everything I've learned in my life, I've read since. I, I look back at my school time now and doing what I do now for a job, I think to myself, it's such a shame there isn't a way of majoring in something when you're at high school. Because if I'd have been taught basic science, basic maths, arithmetic, temperature that a kettle boils and the stuff you need to know, I have no interest in physics, no interest in chemistry or biology, huge interest in geography, history, English, drama. I could have spent 50% of my time doing that and 50% of my time doing the basic life skill stuff that you need to do. Yeah. But no, you have to do an equal amount of science and equal, and it's not for everybody. Because as soon as you get to 16, you go, well, I'm not doing science or languages anymore. I'm going to do politics and history and English and the, the fun stuff. So it's a, yeah. such a strange thing. I mean, kids do know their mind when they're 11, 12, 13. They know what they like. Mm. And we're prescribing this forced kind of idea that, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a strange one, I think. Well, it's also people are worried that if they specialise at that age, then that'll be them stuck. Whereas I can cite them the example of my wife, who was a, a great arts student at school, mm-hmm. was predicted to get very good A-level results, had a very high temperature when she was supposed to take her A-levels, and uh, didn't pick up education again until she was in her mid-20s when we already had two children. Mm-hmm. And she picked it up and went back to the local school and did chemistry, biology and physics A-level because she'd never studied them. Mm -hmm. She said, I never had any interest in them before and I'd be quite interested to see what they are. And she's now um, a doctor of science. She's got a PhD. We write people off, don't we? I think, you know, there's some things that, I mean, a 13-year-old doesn't need to know trigonometry to the level we teach it. No, no No one ever uses it, you know? No (laughs) one ever, ever uses it, you know? (laughs) Cosine and this and Bodmus and all these things. You know, calculator works for me and, you know, I can can add up in my head. I'm bright enough to do that. I'm fine. I'm fine like that. I do regret not going to university and not doing that sort of stuff. I I started work at 16 and um, I think I lost a lot of time doing that. I was in the wilderness for a few years, really. Until I did what I do now. 16 to 29, I had a variety of jobs that I didn't enjoy, and um, which brings us nicely onto my third item. Let's move on to our next item. So yeah. we're going to take the spectrum, the colour one. Yeah. Beautiful. We're going to put it into the time, guys. Well, that's two yeah. items we've got in there. And if anyone's interested, it was a 48K. It wasn't the 128 with the added-in tape player. Right. No one is interested. OK, all right. <laughs> Okay, this is the part near the middle of the podcast where we take a short break for the podcasters to slip some ads in. If we're lucky, we'll be back in a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, let's return to my chat with Justin Morehouse to find out what else he wants to put in his time capsule. My next item is, talking of technology, a pager, a BT pager. <laughs> and I'll do you a quick impression of it. It used to go... Do, 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 do. This is your anxiety. Do, 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 do. All your fears are coming. Do, 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 do. So the reason why I had a pager, this was just before mobile mobile phones. And so quick pricey of my career. 16, I left school. I went on a YTS scheme. I did it through the Chamber of Commerce in Manchester, and I became a shipping clerk. At 16, I worked in this grand building next to the Palace Theatre in Manchester called St. James's Buildings, beautiful white building on the fifth floor, and I worked for a shipping uh, line, and I was doing all the documentation for shipping bills of lading and letters of, letters of credit. At 16, and I was bobbing all over the city centre, delivering things to banks, going to post offices. I was in the bowels of this magnificent building doing filing. Loved it. Loved that kind of stuff. And I worked for another couple of companies, and I was doing all right, but in low-pay admin but it, that was my education. That was me hanging out with older men, the older boys, you know, who to me yeah. looked like grown-ups, and they were only 18, 19. <laughs> and then I went to uh, Felixstowe when I was about 19 uh, because that was the home of shipping as it still is now. And that was the start of the downward spiral for me in the early part of my 20s because I was a wastrel. I was not very good with money. I was... I, I remember I, was, I had no friends. I saw the Batman film, the Tim Burton Batman film. Mm. I saw it every night for a week in Felixstowe at the cinema because I had nothing <laughs> else to do. I loved it. I loved the film, but I was so miserable. I was coming back most weekends. And anyway, eventually after six, seven months, it didn't work out for me there. I came back. I left all my stuff there and I never got it back. And it was all very messy. I ended up moving into accommodation with friends and... Bumming around, basically bummed around. For a time, I was essentially homeless. I was living in a sleeping in a car uh, for for a long time in the summer, and I was sort of like relying on the stranger, kind of some friends. Mm. So I was in my early twenties. So a lot of my friends were similar sort of age, and their parents were working, and maybe they were at university or something. So we would all bum around together, but they had a reason to bum around because they were <laughs> off, you know. But I was still, and I used to wait till my um, my friend Jackie's parents would go to work. And then I would get the train up to where she lived and she'd let me have a shower and wash my clothes. And I was very, very lucky that I had friends like that. And then I sort of pulled myself together a little bit and got a, got a job, proper job then in sales. I used to sell plastic building products. <laughs> um, and then I got I got with the mother of, of my eldest son and we set up home together. And I got a proper job then and I started working in transport. I worked for companies like TNT and Parcel and all these. I was a salesman. I was basically selling Delivery services. I mean, really fascinatingly boring. It just <laughs> genuinely. I remember once, I'll tell you this, Michael, we were at the, um, 
I don't know if you've ever been to the Metropole Hilton in Birmingham at the NEC. I have, yeah. It's a huge hotel and it's always conferences. I mean, I work there now doing after-dinner stuff and when I go there, I'm so chuffed that I'm going earning money, not <laughs> coming to one of these sales conferences. We had this huge conference on and we'd been there all day and then in the evening it was the awards and the party night and Edwin Starr sang. Brilliant. And it was great, and but there's all these... Pissed up account managers from Tewkesbury who didn't care, and I was because I like music, and you know I knew what Edwin Starr was, and and I was just watching him, and just looking at him. I didn't realise now what I know now is that he was probably he didn't give a damn. He was doing a corporate. He's probably getting yeah. paid a small fortune, in and out. Whoa, what is it good for? About twenty grand, <laughs> and then you know off he went. That's the that's what I realise that now. And then they did the sort of a presentation of what if you achieve your targets next year. If you surpass them by just 10%, you'll be going to, and they pressed the button and the screen exploded and it was Mexico. (laughs) Mariachi band came out, streamers, piñatas, two weeks luxury exotic thing in Cancun, if you do this, everything. And everybody was stood on the chairs going, whoa, yes! (laughs) And I just sat there like that. And my manager goes, what's the matter with you? I said, nothing. He said, well, you're not excited. I said, the last thing I want to do is going all day for two weeks with these pricks. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worse. And he went, I don't think this job is for you, is it really? Yeah. So I moved on. I was very good at knowing when I was going to get fired. <laughs> I knew when I was going to get fired and I would get the next job and I would move on and, and that sort of thing. But the pager comes in because... Yeah, who gave you the pager first? So the pager, I was working for this company in Burnley and it was a really dreary job. It was in an old... Road line. Do you remember that company, Road Line? There used to be a transport company. Oh, yeah, called yeah, Ro- yeah. It was an old Road Line depot. It wasn't Road Line. It was another company. I don't exist anymore, but I won't name them. I will not I will not give them the satisfaction of naming <laughs> them. So I worked up at this company in Burnley. My patch was Manchester, and um, I was a salesman, and my job was to get new business. And I had this one boss who was awful. He, he'd worked his way up from the, the uh, being a driver to being the depot manager, and he was just a bit racist and a bit sexist and a bit homo. You could just tell. Mm. He wasn't a nice bloke. Anyway, I was 27, 28 by this time, and he bullied me. He, he bullied me, bullied me, bullied me. Because by this time, I had my son, who um, was a babe in arms. Uh, my wife, I was married, actually. My wife. <laughs> I don't even listen to the Adam Buxton podcast. I just remember thinking of it. My wife at the time was working, but, you know, we needed both wages to come in to pay the bills. We had a new house and everything else. And he bullied me. He, he put a lot of pressure on me, and it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't great. And they were short-staffed. And he used to get me to come in for 7 o'clock every morning to help the depot get the vans out for the deliveries to do paperwork and one thing and another, because they were short-staffed. Mm. Which meant me getting up at 5.30 in Manchester, getting ready with a brand-new baby, you know, sleepless nights. And he used to berate me. He was, he was very nasty. And people challenged him in front of me. and said, why are you treating him like that? And he used to say, because kittens can't fuck cats. That's what he uh. used to say. He was an awful man. Awful. Awful man. Anyway, I'd had enough. I was depressed. I was, I was just, I hated the job so much. And then one day I woke up and I'd overslept. I'd overslept by about three hours. And I just, you know those days when you just, both of you don't wake up, the baby had slept in. Yeah. And it was like eight o'clock and we both woke up and went, oh, I should have been working an hour ago. I got in the car, got ready, started driving up and this pager went off. It kept 
beep, beep, beep. So what you'd have to do is the pager would go off. You'd go to a phone box. You'd phone the office and mm. they'd go, Mr. X wants to speak to you. Yeah. And it would inevitably, invariably be him. He'd want to speak to me and it'd normally be, where are you? What are you doing? And I knew this was coming. Anyway, this pager went off and I was about a mile from my house. I'm crossing a bridge at a place called Globe Lane in Duckingfield and it's the Peak Forest Canal. And I got out of the car to use the phone and I saw the canal and I saw the pager and I threw it in the canal. <laughs> Brilliant. I threw it in the canal and I made two phone calls. The first phone call I made to my bank to find out if I'd been paid, and I had. And I transferred my wages into my savings account. Mm. And the next call I made was to the office, and I said, tell what's-his-face, I quit, and he can come and get the car, because I had a company car. <laughs> and they were like, what, 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 what? Just, and I just did it. I just quit, and I went back, and I told my wife, and I explained what had happened, and she was a bit worried, but I phoned a couple of people by then, and I'd got some part-time driving work, and... Um, this is me. I will always find work, and you know. Mm. So they came to get the car, and it was brilliant because he came, the bloke, and he just couldn't stand that he'd lost. <laughs> so um, he was at the door, and my wife went to the door to answer the door, and he went, "Oh, it's just in here." And I just leaned back off the sofa, and I went, the "Keys are in the car, mate." And he went, well, "I went, that's enough, thank you," and I never saw him again. Great. And it was a liberating moment to throw that um, pager in there and just go, you know what, done. Yeah. You know, I mean, not without its risks, but sometimes you've got to do that. You've got to look after yourself. I think so, particularly if, you know, you're being bullied. And, and it was bullying. It was. There's no other way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. No, I've seen it. We've all seen it. Yeah. People with power, just knowing they've got the power, and as in your case, thinking that you're trapped. There's yeah. nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And they can keep going, and you'll never get away from it. They've got you as a prisoner. Yeah, it's awful. And then you throw the keys, you know. You yeah. say, that's it, I've unlocked the door and I've thrown the keys away, you can't lock me up anymore. For me, that was temporary because that ended and I got on with my life and everything else that's happened since is part of that story. Mm. But he'll never change. No. He'll always be that person that did that. And I'm not the only one he's done that to. He'll have done that to other people, you know? Yes, yes. I'd rather people think fondly of me than, you know, anything. That's the, I only, that's why I'm a comedian. I only care what people think about me. You know? <laughs> okay, the page is in there. So what's your next one? Let's move on a decade. The next one is an SM58 microphone, which is the, the standard microphone that singers and comedians use. And this is for my 30s to 40s. So I was 29 when I started doing stand-up for the first time. I'd never thought of doing stand-up. I'd never, I used to go and watch loads of stand-up and I was a bit of a Peter Kay and a Johnny Vegas sort of groupie mm. and Ross Noble. And I used to love these guys. I used to go to the Frog and Bucket in Manchester and to the Buzz in Charlton. And it was amazing. The people I've seen, you know, Tim Vine and Al Murray and all these people I've seen that I still remember how great they were. And I just was, I got back into doing sort of sales and I was driving down the road one day and I think I was listening to a comedian on Radio 5 or something. And I thought to myself, how do you become a comedian? Because I love comedy and I'm quite funny and, and things like that. So I, it was like a movie. I phoned a comedy club up <laughs> and I said, how do you become a comedian? And they said, well, we have these things called open mic nights. You know, you need to... And the, the guy said to me, he's called Scott. I remember he went, you need balls of steel. So he uh, he booked me in for a couple of weeks later because uh, they, they they were full for the next 
couple of weeks doing Edinburgh previews. I didn't even know what that meant. I just went, yes, of course, yes. <laughs> Edinburgh previews, of course. And then um, booked myself in. I had to do five minutes. And almost certainly the reason he booked you in is because everybody else was going to Edinburgh. Edinburgh, of course, yeah. So I turned up and uh, I told one person at work, and there was about 50 of them, and it could have been a nightmare, but they were brilliant. They loved it. And I did really well. The first one, you speak to any comedian asking about their first gig, it'll either be terrible or fantastic. No one has a middling first gig. And the first one was super. It was just so good. I felt great. I did this <laughs> five minutes. I thought, I'm a comedian. I went back the week afterwards with a brand new five minutes of material because I thought that's what you had to do. I was chewing gum. <laughs> chewing gum to stand up. And died. Died the death of a thousand deaths. <laughs> and then the third week I went back and I sort of mixed it up a bit and I did all right. And I thought to myself, then I went, you know what? I'm 29. I've done three gigs. How do I say I used to be a comedian? Mm. How do I give this up? Who says I'm an ex-clown? So I threw myself into it. So in the first year of doing stand-up, I did 250 shows wow. in a year. I did everywhere that you could do. I'd go to London, do four a night and drive back through the night. I'd go to Coventry and do five minutes on a Monday. I'd do all these things. I'd run around and, and I got good quickly. I must have been all right, but I got really good quickly. I worked hard. I mean, my marriage failed, but I worked hard and everything <laughs> else. I was doing all this work. And then one day I was in the office and there's a knock at the door and this guy comes to the door. It was a bailiff. And he'd come to remove the uh, vans from work because somebody had not paid a parking fine yeah. <laughs> from parking outside a gig in Chesterfield about six months before. This 30-quid parking fine was now 800 quid. Oh, my God. And I just kept putting it off, putting it off, and I never dealt with it. I never dealt with it, which is a, a constant in my life. Never dealt with it. And I had to phone my mate, Mike. And I said, Mike, have you... Have you got any money on your credit card? And he said, yes. I said, will you pay this and I'll pay you back? And he did. And then the boss came to me and he said, for the second time in my career in real life, I don't think this is for you, is it? And I said, no, it's <laughs> not. And we agreed a severance package. And uh, I kept the car for a couple of months. I got a month's wedding, which was good because the car was great to be a stand-up comedian. A company car, mm. mobile phone and a laptop. It was like perfect, you know, expense account. It was, it was the world's best open spot. So then I went full-time. I went full-time as a comedian within a year. And then six weeks after that, I got a part in Phoenix Nights. Wow. What happened is I met Peter Kay, and, and everybody knew he was making this programme. And I said to him, could I have an audition? Because I wanted to know what you did in an audition. <laughs> I wanted to know what you did, you know. And he went, yeah, you can. You can have an audition. He said, because you're the first one that's asked for an audition, not for a part. Everybody said, can I have a part? So I went for the audition. And I don't, I, it's only now the naivety of, of not knowing what to do helped me because I did what they asked me to do. And then they said, can you do it this way? So I did it that way. Then they said, can you do it halfway between? Mm -hmm. And I did that. And all they're looking for there, as you know, is to see if you can take direction, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you can respond to direction. And I did. And then he phoned me up at the night. He said, you got this part. And I was going to be in the TV show. This was like 12 <laughs> months from being a comedian. And I, Went into the temporary job I had the next day. I was working at a repair team for the council, and I said, I won't be coming in again. And they said, why is that? I said, because I've got a part in a TV show. <laughs> and, <laughs> and who would know that it would turn out to be such an iconic Exactly. Show. Well, who would know it would only be six weeks' work, and then I'd be skint again at Christmas? Because <laughs> you just think you're in a TV show. <laughs> I'm made forever. 
But bizarrely, <laughs> and this is the microphone is going in because the, for me, the microphone is everything that I do. And I'm very lucky that I do lots of different things, radio and voiceovers and a bit of this and a, a bit of that. But the microphone symbolizes stand up comedy and stand up comedy has been, and I don't use this phrase lightly, Michael, at all. It's been a lifesaver. Mm. It literally has been the thing that has made me happy, content, comfortable, everything else, fulfilled. You know, if I didn't do anything else and I just went on stage three or four nights a week, I've made it. You know, <laughs> for me, that's – it's amazing. It's am- What it's given me is incredible, you know. Every chance I've ever had and everything I've ever done since wouldn't have happened for me without stand-up. Maybe going back those years and I'd gone to sixth form and I look back now and I think, I wish I'd gone to drama school. I wish I'd done these things. I wish I'd trained to act because I love it. I love show business. I love everything. I love the idea of the water rats. I love the five-minute call. I love show. <laughs> I love it. I love it, love it, love it. I think you you have to, don't you? Otherwise, it's not for you. Mm. And that microphone for me symbolises that. There's a little addendum to this story, and I'll tell you this because I – you're an actor and you'll appreciate this. Okay. So straight after I'd had that audition and got the part in Phoenix Nights, I get another call from the casting agent to say, would you go up for something else? So I said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm one for one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about to get it. I'll get this, yeah. And it was for two films, two short films we're making on BBC Two. For this director, um, and he, was called, uh, he was called Danny, um, what's he called? Danny... He's done a couple of things, like the Olympics and that. He's from Radcliffe. Danny Boyle? Danny Boyle, yeah. (laughs) So it's two parts for Danny Boyle. I've never heard of him. Yeah. (laughs) I go in the room and he tells me this this is an amazing fact. He said, I was the first person to audition for him for these two things. I was the first person through the door. And he said to me, he said, do you know the last person I cast? I said, no. He said, Leonardo DiCaprio off the beach. (laughs) It's literally the last person he cast. And I didn't know. He said to me, he said, uh, anything you want to ask me before we, we do this? And um, I don't know if you know Toby Haydock. Toby Haydock's an actor. He's a, a writer and Doctor Who aficionado. Mm-hmm. And I told Toby about going for this thing, and he told me this little thing to say. Only after me doing it and then telling Toby, did Toby say, I was kidding. So I said to <laughs> Danny Boyle, he said, anything you want to ask me? I said, yeah. I said, I said, you know that scene in uh, Shallow Grave where they're burying the body and it's illuminated by the taillights? And he says, <laughs> yes. I said, well, have you seen Goodfellas where they're burying a body and it's illuminated by the taillights? He said, yes. <laughs> I said, when does homage end and plagiarism begin? <laughs> and, he, and Danny Ball called me a cheeky cunt. <laughs> uh, brilliant. <laughs> And I didn't get the part. I didn't get the part. Uh, oh, no. But I'll tell you who gets the parts, and then you'll see, well, you were all right. The two parts I went for eventually went to Christopher Eccleston <laughs> and Timothy Spall. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, you know what? May the best men win. Absolutely. We've all been in that situation. Yeah. So the microphone for me is, it, it symbolises what this, you know, my 30s became. And um, it's almost like I've written this because it does lead me on. To my next thing. Can the microphone go in? I'm just going to check. Is that a Shaw? It's the Shaw SM58. It's the microphone of choice. Fantastic. There we are. And my final item then, symbolises my 40s, is a script. Mm -hmm. And it can be any script, but just a script. I love 
scripts. I love the feel of them. And I've been very lucky uh, to do some, I've not done many things, but I've been very lucky to do some, for me, very important things. And, and the most important things I've done are two plays at the Royal Exchange, mm-hmm. where I've I'd never thought I would get a chance to do anything like that which I loved and I wish I'd done more of now and but circumstances have dictated I haven't. When you're in it, when you know when you get an acting job and you first get your script, it's great, isn't it? It's great. You know, you you go through it and you get your pen and you mark your lines down and you carry that around little notes. And I love seeing actors' scripts in the green room when 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 they've been in, you know, rehearsals for two or three weeks and there's things like pick up the cat and there's <laughs> don't forget milk scribbled on it and people's phone numbers and, yeah. you know, little bits of direction, thoughts and all that sort of stuff on that. So a script like that is very important. So I love that. I wrote a play for Radio 4, an afternoon play once, and uh, that script, uh, you, you spoke to Steve Edge, didn't you? Yeah. And Stevie Edge helped me with a little bit of that and the actors, when they get older, had Roy Hood in it and Roy Barraclough. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it was an incredible, uh, lovely play that I, yeah. I mean, I listened back to it recently. I don't think it's that good anymore, but <laughs> at the time it was, I loved it. It was called An Insurance Inspector Calls. <laughs> uh, bleach has been spilled in a Blackpool guest house and it's conference season soon, so they need to get it replaced. Oh, nice. And Roy Barraclough turns up as the insurance inspector yeah. and he unravels the life of the people who live in the house. So, yeah, it was really good fun. So, th- when you first get a script with your name on, written by, and it's got the names of the actors on, the BBC scripts are very classically looking, aren't they? Mm-hmm. They've not changed. We mentioned about going seeing your radioactive shows. Yeah. And I think I think in the uh, brochure or something I've seen, you, the script... They're exactly the same. They've never changed the, the format. They've never no. changed so that kind of thing and who the BA is and how long it is and the phone numbers are on yeah. the front now and are scribbled out. The so date is going to be broadcast, the date is recorded. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely. So scripts are, are taken because I think as I've got a bit older and a bit longer in stand-up, I still love stand-up, as I mentioned, with the microphone, but I'm keen to do more acting and writing and, and that sort of thing. And committing things to paper as a comedian is unusual. The idea that the, the script is king is 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 really interesting. Mm. The only time I've never worked with a script is when I did a Ken Loach film. I did Looking for Eric with Eric Cantona. I know. I and, read that and, and I was very jealous. I have <laughs> I have once been touched on the shoulder by Eric Cantona, but that was uh, as close as I got. When I first met him, so I get the part with Ken Loach and um, he phones me up, Ken Loach. I'm driving down Piccadilly in London. When doing, I don't know why I'm driving down Piccadilly. It's night, it's stupid, wasn't it? But <laughs> phone goes and Ken Loach goes, can you keep a secret? And I said, yeah, I thought he was going to tell me he was a Tory or something. He said, can you keep a secret? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, we've got Eric Cantona in the film. I said, oh, my God. Because nobody knew, nobody knew that he was going to be in it. I mean, even the Steve Everts, the lead actor, didn't know until he appears on screen. God. He said, yeah, Eric Cantona's going to be in the film. So I said, oh, that's amazing. He said, what I want to do? He said, I want to do a bit of improv with you and Eric so he can get used to the speech patterns and the speed. And it was me and John Henshaw. And it's like there's two people's voices that you wouldn't pick to do. <laughs> it's Johnny Clark's out of the side of his mouth like that. <laughs> and me, it's like Phyllis Pierce from Corrie, you know. <laughs> right now, Percy, cup of tea and a slice of cake. <laughs> so we went and did these uh, this this thing with him at in some offices next to the Royal Exchange Theatre. And it was really, it was fun. You know, we did this improv with him and everything else. And at one point, we're having a cup of tea and he pushes the plate of biscuits over to me and he says... Uh, would you like a jamie d'ajure? <laughs> I said, no, thank you, Eric. 
So that, but the, the point of telling you that story is that, because I don't know how you feel about this, and I know some actors are, are reticent to do this kind of work, but you don't get a script. Occasionally you'll get a page. Most of the time you'll get a bit of direction. And we only got a script on the final day of filming. Good Lord. Yeah, and they film it all sequentially, so you don't know the story. And No. There's some criticism of that, isn't it, that you're not acting actors to act. You're asking them to react to real life, aren't you? I can see that criticism, but at the same time, you are saying to them, this is your mm-hmm. character, so you have to stay in character for those things. You're not you. Same with Mike Lee. Yeah, but he does it more in depth, doesn't he? He might ask you to... The story, isn't it, where someone's been a deep-sea fisherman for six months <laughs> and forgot that they're not making the film anymore. <laughs> He's gone undercover to be, get into thing. So scripts, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put scripts in there. If that's all right. It's also a slice of where we are now. That when somebody opens this time capsule, because that's what you want, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They open it and they go, "Oh, this guy was, he's, you know, he's a man of letters, despite his one O level off the caretaker." <laughs> and look at, oh, look, he's written little notes by this. This is rubbish. Well, he has yeah. no idea what this. He didn't understand yeah. this play at all. <laughs> that character's nuanced. <laughs> He's playing with a straight bat. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Well, now I love a script as well. I do love a script, so I'm mm. happy to put... We'll put a pile of them in there. The only difference between what used to be a BBC script, a BBC radio script, and what you get now is that the paper now is better quality. Really? So, in fact, it makes more noise, which is annoying. Ah. It used to be really flimsy stuff, so it was like almost like cloth. Yeah. So you could turn the page without making a noise. When I did the news quiz for the first time, I looked across and I thought, what's Jeremy Hardy doing? But he was clapping off mic. <laughs> so when he applauded, you do it off the mic. It's a really nice thing, isn't it? Yeah. Really, I thought, well, I've learned something today from the master. That's the master, do yeah. Things. I remember the first radio drama I did where I, I was acting in it and I got the contract and it was like, you get 50 pence and no lunch and... That sort of stuff. Yeah. It's not very well paid, is it? No. And it said, bring some hard sole shoes and a pencil. <laughs> I thought, um, that's not changed since round the horn, has it? No, not really. Bring your own hard sole shoes to make so you have to walk up gravel, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and then and, and a pencil. The pencil is to again to stop it scratching on the paper, isn't it? Yeah. A soft pencil. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Okay, so we've got five <laughs> things in there. The pager is the one you want to get rid of. Definitely, because that symbolises an awful time in my life. You know, sometimes adversity can spur you on. Out of all situations that are awful, you find a sort of a ray of hope because that mm. moment of throwing that pager into the canal yeah. is a glorious moment. Getting rid of the pager was the thing, so it's gone. Gone. And what, one day they drain that canal and they, they go, look at these navvies, they had pages in <laughs> the 1783 when they built this canal. Oh, Justin, thank you so much. What a really lovely collection of things to go into the time capsule. Is that all right? Yeah, it's been really lovely talking to you. And as you say, I feel really at ease chatting with you, and we've never met. No, just seen you on stage. But I would have thought that would have put you off. No, no, not at all. <laughs> and we have mutual friends. We do. The people that know you are the kind of people that, that go, oh, well, if he's friends with them, oh, that's he's a nice. good guy. And I think, Michael, you straddle the worlds of theatre and comedy lovely, don't you? Yeah, that's... I, uh, yeah, I try to. Yeah. What that means is I'll do anything they offer me. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't these days. <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Justin Morehouse. 
If you had fun, then you can subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. You can, in some circumstances, leave a review and rate the podcast as well, which we always appreciate. You can follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to find out what's coming up. And you can download the theme tune, which you can hear in the background. There it is. Very nice. Written by Past the Peas Music on Spotify. The producer of this podcast was John Fenton Stevens, and it was a cast-off production. I mean, I realise that could be misinterpreted, the term cast-off. It could be seen as being a nautical term, but, um, well, it isn't. I mean, I once knew a sailor with a wooden leg called Smith, as they say in Mary Poppins, and I knew another one with a wooden chest. Very useful in a scrum. Still, it's, it's nothing to do with that. Oh, and we don't intend for you to think we're referring to the show as you would some old clothes that have been tossed aside or cast off, as some people say. I mean, it's certainly not that. No way. Uh, No, no, I think the idea was that by using the word cast in cast off, we would make you think of the word podcast. You see, podcast as in cast off. You see, therefore, you would associate the thing you're listening to with a podcast which is what you're listening to. Yeah, I wish I'd never started this. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.